0: You are listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. met met Annette, and we all four of us met her, and we're friends even back then. And... uh And then we kind of went our separate ways and then we heard that Ron was pastoring here in Canby and we were nearby for a wedding or something. So we came and sat in the service just a year or two after he got here. And Ronnie was the first one to show us a bunch of redeemed hippie athletes what it meant like what it looked like to lead. He was the first one to like break that ground for us to to how to lead and not just lead, but lead as a servant. Lead as someone who cared for and loved and laid his life down for his flock, and so I, I remember coming. You were in the other building. This was years and years ago. They would only been here a couple of years, and we just stood there and said, "Golly, he talks like a real pastor. <laughs> he don't even be making mistakes or nothing." And um, and then we. Since so this church grew, then I went on with my. Dean and I went on with our ministry, and in that time, we've we've we've. Planted three churches, and one of which, Salem, we were at for 14 years, and it was the most fruitful season of our life. And then I went on to spend some time working in academia and then uh, on churches' staffs, which basically all of that tells you I can't keep a job. And um, so, uh, but to come now back and to see this church that is so magnificently persevered through this crazy pandemic season. And to see Ron as a lion in winter, surrounded by young leaders, and see this church poised for its next season, I mean, I just, I don't know of anything that could fill my heart up more uh, than that, besides a cowboy victory today. (laughs) All right. So, let's begin. Now, the last time I counted, there were about 7.8 billion people on earth. That's a full house. And that's just the number of people that are alive today. The Population Reference Bureau estimates that 107 billion people have lived throughout human history. Now, you may have heard some amazing claims about the Bible and, like, uh, and what the Bible claims. Here's, a, here's one crazy thing that the Bible claims. Of all 7.8 billion people on earth right now, God knows each one of them by name, even to the point of knowing the number of hairs on their head. God knows that. Now, for some people, that would be easy to do. You know, I'll give you an example. Hmm, Michael Jordan, zero. So I I know, I know, know the number of hairs on his head, but... For most people, the number of hairs on their head, that's an astounding reality. The claim is that God knows everything that there is to know. If it's knowable, then God knows it. Now, the theological term for that is omniscience, the the fact that God is all-knowing. Now, the only reason that I would even tell you that or bring that up is to reference this point. God knows the hard battle that you are facing right now, as well as the incredible challenges that you wake up to every day. Every single person in this room is fighting a hard battle in one way or the other, and God knows the intimate details of that battle. The Bible claims that. The Bible then also has claims that grow more audacious than that. Not only does he care, not only does he know what you are facing, but he also cares deeply. He's not like this distant observer, like a big computer that knows everything, but he is deeply involved in your life, he cares about your pain, and he cares about what you care about. If you care about it, God cares about it, because God cares about you. Can I get even more audacious than that? He not only knows what you're facing, he not only cares about what you're facing, but he has promised to provide everything you need to fight your battle and to ultimately win. He has promised that. Now, you're probably thinking, dude, that's making some big claims. You better get to proving. Okay, let's do that. I'm calling this message, Your Best Comes Next. And I believe that that is true And I believe that that is possible. And lest you think that this is just a bunch of theory that I'm throwing out, no, I'm basically just going to give today a status report from my own personal journey. This is what Didi and I are experiencing. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to the second chapter of the Gospel of John, verses 1 through 11. If you don't have a Bible with you or you're not sure where that Gospel of John is located, that's okay. It'll be on the screen behind us as we talk. Recently, I came across this story that we're going to spend some time in today at a very vulnerable, mm, strange time in my life. I became an all-out Christ follower when I was 17 years of age. I had spent about six of my teenage years just partying and playing sports and letting my desires run the show. But one night, Christ had just been like the hound of heaven in that famous poem by Francis Thompson was just after me. And one night, I just surrendered. I was 17. I'd been out with my friends partying. I was laying in my bed, and I said these words, Lord, I can't change my life. I try and I fail. I try and I fail. I try. So if you want me changed, you change me. And tomorrow, I'm going to live as if. And the next day i just lived as if i stepped out of the boat and said the lord has changed my life jesus is first and for one day i served christ one day turned to a week a week turned to a month a month turned to a year and now that's been like 47 years and it's still the same thing i can't live this christian life only he can live it through me so each day i step out as if i step out in faith that jesus christ is going to live his life through me not long after that surrender God called me into the ministry, and I asked my pastor, "Well, I think God's calling me to be a pastor." And he goes, "Okay, go to life." And I said, "Well, what are some other options?" "No, no, no, you go to life." And so, okay, so uh, that was in the days when people did what their pastor told them to do. And so I, I went to life. After graduating from life, uh, I met Didi. We were married right after I graduated. We spent the next 40 years planting churches, and as I said, leading a college, and working on staff, while after marrying the love of my life, Didi, and then having two kids who have done their jobs. They've given me five grandchildren. (laughs) Um, But at at 63, I found myself leaving my job in the Northwest, moving back to L.A. to be near our grandchildren, and wondering whether God was now done with me. You know, I've never been that impressed with my walk with the Lord, I've made so many mistakes, and have been on the receiving end, time and time again, of his forgiveness and his grace, and second and third and fourth and fiftieth chances. And all of a sudden, in my closing in on my mid-sixties, I was thinking, "Wow, I don't have that many prospects at this point." <laughs> I mean, there were some great pastoral opportunities, even within Four Square. There were some that I reached out and and uh, and inquired about them, but. But the answer came back, you uh, know, in, in essence saying, oh, no, no, you're too old. No one is looking for a 63-year-old pastor. We want someone cutting edge and young. And Robert, you would look ridiculous in tight jeans, <laughs> <And> <laughs> which is a prerequisite now. Uh, and I got it. I mean, I understood, though I did not necessarily agree with their assessment of what I had to offer in this fourth quarter, Except for the tight jeans part. Yeah, I do agree with them there. But still, this kind of response, four or five responses like that, just gutted me. And here's the question that I actually contemplated for the first time. Was God done with me? Were the best years behind me? I found myself struggling with depression, and I actually had this horrible vision of my life with the words, word Ichabod written over it. Ichabod is from 1 Samuel 4.21, which means the glory of the Lord has departed. Now, when you go into this kind of dark place, you don't always think that clearly. I even began to think, wow, maybe the people in my life would be better off without me. I was in a bit of a crisis. And then I read the second chapter of John. And God spoke to me. So let's rewind 2,000 years to a small village in the north of Israel in the region called the Galilee to a village named Cana. Now Cana is mentioned in the Bible a couple of times. One in John 21-2 where it says that Nathanael, one of Jesus' disciples, was from Cana. The second time it's mentioned is in today's scripture, John 2. No one really knows where Cana is, um, uh, where biblical Cana was. There's there's a town that is known as Cana. Now it's full of churches and shops. And of course, because of what the story is going to reveal, they sell wine there. Well, we bought some our first time there. It was horrible. So it pretty much validates it was not the Cana of the Bible. There's a village, there's some ruins right now, and this is Kirbet Cana, and it's nine miles from uh, the, where Jesus grew up, Nazareth, and these are the, this is probably where Biblical Cana uh, uh, was. It's, it's the most likely, according to archaeology. But this is, it was located just nine miles from where Jesus grew up. His adolescent years, his teenage years, into his 20s, was just, he was very familiar with this village of Cana. So let's turn to the text, John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Let's stop there. The context of Jesus' first miracle was a family that was in the midst of crisis. The scene was a wedding, and it was heading towards a disastrous conclusion. Now, a wedding in the time of Jesus was usually a week-long celebration of partying and dancing and eating and fellowshipping all week-long celebrating a couple's decision to become one flesh. Now, divorce existed in the time of Jesus, of course, uh, but not near to the extent that it exists today. I grew up, like most of you all, surrounded by divorce. My parents were divorced when I was nine. My dad remarried and was divorced. My mom remarried and was divorced. My brother was married and divorced. Both my sisters were married and divorced. My brother-in-law was married and divorced. My sister-in-law were married and divorced. Didi and I have been married 42 years. I I think we're gonna make it, but keep praying (laughs) because she's more difficult than she appears. Um, Now, So as I say, divorce existed then, but not nearly as as commonly as it does now. It's the norm now. Now, like today, though, you got married with the intention of until death do us part. You see, life was hard. It was very hard existence in first century Galilee. And this hard life was best negotiated as a team. With having someone who has your back. Most marriages at this time were arranged. That's not to say that romantic love didn't exist. It did. But it was not the basis of the marriage. Now it's the basis of marriage. That's why so many marriages end in divorce. One of the reasons. But, but it, it was a factor, but it was not the basis of the marriage. Survival was. Growing a family was. Strengthening the community was. Now when a couple were betrothed, engaged to be married... They, they were basically legally wed. If they were to, if it were to break the engagement, they would have to get rid of divorce. They were legally wed, but the marriage wasn't consummated for one year. They didn't live together for one year following the uh, commitment. In that year, the groom would go home and build the house that he and his wife would live in and raise their family in. Usually, it was just an addition of a room to the father's house. He'd work on that for a year, and he would also have to prove that he was able then to support a family. Only when the father saw that there was a place for him to bring his bride to and that he was able to sustain this family, only then... Would the father give the okay? It did not move forward till the father said, boy, go get your wife. Then they would bring the wife back to the house for a week-long celebration. By the way, this gives great insight into Jesus' answer when he was asked, when is the Son of Man going to return? And Jesus says, I don't know. That is only up to the Father. When the Father gives the word, then the Son of Man will return. It was following a a Jewish wedding ritual that basically when the Father gave the word, then the Son returns. And when our Heavenly Father sees that the world is finally ready, which is sooner than any of us can even imagine, then the trumpet will blow. Which coincides with this, because when the son got the word from the father, they would blow the shofar, and he and his friends would make a procession through the streets to his bride's house. His bride would hear the trumpet and know that it was time. She'd get her, br- her, her bridesmaids ready, and they'd be waiting. The, the groom would arrive she would be placed on a litter and carried to the house or to the community center, which was usually attached to the synagogue like in Capernaum. So then they would begin to party. There would be stored up food and refreshment. And for toasts, for refreshment and for fun, the wine would flow. This celebration would honor this new couple and the celebration blessed the community with a week of partying in this hard scrabble existence. To be able to celebrate for a week, it blessed the community. And it indicated to, that the children coming, would, Lord willing, that would be coming, would be provided for and they would be safe. Now, a guest at this wedding was Mary. Um, we don't know if she had an official role there, but there was something going on. Because when the unthinkable happened, wine ran out, only Mary knew. We don't know why only Mary knew, but only Mary knew. The wedding had run out of wine. This would be a social, a symbolic, a family family reputation disaster. You couldn't just run over to BevMo and load back up. There was no way to avoid the consequences of poor planning, whether it be because of unexpected guests or reach-out distancing grass that would fall on this bride and groom. No way. Now, you may be in a season where you don't know what comes next for you, wondering if your best years are behind you, or if in this world of one bolt of bad news after another bolt of bad news, that there's no more reason for hope. Your marriage may have ended in disaster, or you may be in the grip of a secret addiction, or depression may be there to greet you every morning when you open your eyes. Maybe you feel purposeless with no idea of what comes next and your life may seem like a Jewish, first century Jewish wedding that has run out of wine. Somehow, Mary, the mother of Jesus, becomes aware of the crisis that is brewing before it's calmly known. The servants knew because they would be the ones who would go into the storeroom area where the steward would then fill up their pitchers with wine from the supply, and they would be the ones that would take it out amongst the guests, and now they knew because they came in, and there was nothing going into their pitchers. They're kind of the unsung heroes in this story, one, because of what they do later, but secondly, they're the ones that were going to have to face the embarrassment as they went before the guests empty-handed. This was going to become a nightmare for this groom and family. And Mary says to Jesus, they've run out of wine. And how Jesus' response is kind of amazing. He says, dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. Kind of he rebuffs her a little bit. Some of your translations try to translate that term, dear woman. It, dear woman is attempt to make it softer, that term. But it, it, it's a term of respect. But, and Jesus, every interaction he had with his mom, it was always with love and respect, but it was also clearly letting her know that she had the same access to him as anybody else had. She didn't have special connections. My time has not yet come, I think, just indicates that Jesus knew that if he, de- if he did what needed to be done right then and there, then it was the beginning of his glory being revealed. And it would culminate with him drinking wine with us in the new kingdom. And once he started down that slope, there, there was no stopping it. And so was it really time for that? Now, the name Maria is Spanish for the, term, for the word Mary. And at this point, Mary proves that she's a Latina mom because she doesn't pay any attention at all to what her son says. <laughs> I can almost see her face because I grew up with her face. This is her face. And then <laughs> she just goes... Turns says to the servants, and say, do whatever he tells you to do. <laughs> Jesus is all like, wow, all right. But at this moment, between when, when Jesus says these words to Mary, woman, it's not my time, and when Mary turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do, in that brief moment, I believe the father spoke to Jesus and says, it is time. Here we go. Everything changes right now. So he has the servants fill up six stone jars, holding up to 30 gallons each. It mentions stone because this means they were used for ceremonial purposes. They made, being made of stone, they couldn't be contaminated. Other, kind of, uh, were used, other vessels were clay, and these, these were used for everyday use, but stone was for ceremonial purposes. So he says to, these cere- to, to fill up these with water, uh, each holding 30 gallons each, six times 30, 180 gallons. Woo! This is where things get fun. John two eight. Now he told him, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. The master of the banquet is a bit of a mysterious figure. He probably was a combination of master of ceremonies and chief steward. He was overseeing the wedding to make. He's hired to oversee the wedding and make sure it was the right kind of wedding. He's kind of hired to say everything is okay here. This family did it right. But they had run out of wine. There would be no seal of approval. People that live in Western culture like we do do not understand the role of shame in Eastern culture. Eastern culture is a very shame-based culture for the most part. That's why saving face is so crucial in the East. In the West, we're kind of unashamed of anything. But in the East, there's a very important aspect of life liveness, saving face, because shame is horrible. Uh, shame sticks around had they run out of wine, this family would have carried the stigma for years to come. They would have carried the stigma for all of their lives. If The family of a bride was, could even file a lawsuit against the groom's family for not coming through, for promising to be able to provide for their daughter, but failing that they were open to legal action. What an inauspicious start to a marriage and boy did jesus know about inauspicious starts to a marriage his mom carried the stigma all of his life and the rest of her life of having mm, jumped the gun during her engagement and getting with joseph and getting pregnant with jesus wink wink at the water fountain or the the well every day when she walked up But why does Jesus care? A family is facing social scandal and shame. A young man's ability to provide for his family didn't even last through the wedding celebration. So here at the moment that all seems lost, Jesus directs the servants to take a sample from one of the jars, take it to the master of the wedding, and let him taste it. Verse 8 and 9. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants had drawn the water new. Then he called the bridegroom aside and says, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best for last. You have saved the best till now. Then it goes on to say, this is the first of his miraculous signs Jesus performed at Canaan and Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Jesus has turned water into the best wine that the master of the banquet has ever tasted. And instead of carrying disgrace and dishonor, this family, and in particular this groom, would carry the distinction of doing what no one had ever done before in this culture, save the best wine for last. And Jesus by this act had solidified his three-year march to the cross that it had begun and his strategy of making disciples that he would implement for that three years who would then take the gospel to the ends of the earth after he resurrected and arose that would culminate with us 2,000 years later on the other side of the globe worshiping Jesus and following him with all of our lives. Now, when I was confused and discouraged in that state a couple years ago, and I read these words, but you have saved the best for last, I realized that God was saying something to me. And not just to me, but to you. And to every man, woman, boy, and girl on this planet, that no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, no matter what situation you find yourself in right now, if you will hear what Jesus is saying to you right now, and do it, and surrender to his love, your best comes next. Now, how can I say this so boldly and believe it to the core of my being? There's about two, three reasons why. One, God passionately loves you and cares about you and your pain. He loves you. Yeah, 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 I'm not talking to the person sitting next to you. I'm talking to you. He loves you. He knows everything there is to know about you. He knows every flaw. He knows every mistake. He doesn't love you as you should be because none of us are as we should be. He loves us as we are. He passionately loves you. In both the first and the second half of the Bible, he declares it on page after page. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3, he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. When we have fallen on our faces, he doesn't kick us or reject us. He draws us with his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness time after time after time. And in the New Testament, the second half of our Bible, in the most widely known verse of all, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God loves you. And the definition of love that I use is to act for the good of its object. That's love. When you love someone, you don't act to hurt them. If someone claims to love you and acts to hurt you, that is not love. If you love someone, you want their highest good and you work for their highest good. Not only does he love us and cares about us, care about us and our impossible situations and pain. But there's more. Here's some more good news. Not only does he love you where you are right now, but his arm is not short. God is able to do whatever you need, whatever is needed for you to have the abundant life that he dreams for you and that you dream for yourself. What is your dream? What, what, what has he planted in your heart? God is able to provide what you need for you to have that abundant life. God is not some stained glass two-dimensional figure. He is not some doddering old man hanging out in heaven. God is all-powerful and all-able. Scripture describes him this way in Ephesians 3.20. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. You see, John says this. Jesus says so clearly in John chapter 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came that you may have life and have it to the full. That's his will for you, that your life would be rich and full and abundant and overflowing. The enemy's plan is to rip you off, to steal, kill, sell you a bill of goods. This is the way to a good life. And when you buy into it, it turns to poison and gravel in our mouth. But God's will for you is to have a life that is rich and full and abundant. One of my professors, and Ron and I shared this professor, he told us a story about visiting his relatives. He had grown up, this professor had grown up on a farm. And on a farm, when they ate, they'd be at a table, and in would come a platter like this of fried chicken, golden brown. And then a bowl like this of mashed potatoes with rivers of belted butter flowing down the side. With big old bowls of fresh green beans covered in butter as well, because in those days it was good for you. <laughs> and then a big old platter of biscuits with butter and honey. More butter, baby. Always makes things better. And they would eat, boom, 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 as a family. But then they'd go to visit their rich relatives who had more money almost than God. And they would, they would go to their visitor and they would sit down to eat, and out would come a little platter of chicken and say, would set it on a doily. And everybody would get their piece of chicken. And then they'd bring out the mashed potatoes and put it on a doily. And then serve, everybody gets a scoop of potatoes. And then the same thing with all that stuff. And our, our teacher one time just stood before our class and says, Students, God doesn't serve doily dinners, He serves family style. Plenty for everybody. Grace is undeserved provision. What do you need from God? God has it for you. There's grace for that. Financial difficulty? There's grace. But my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. I have never seen the righteous forsaken or his children not begging for bread. God is able to provide. You have physical problems, struggling with different areas, there's grace. Romans eight eleven. and if the spirit who raised him, Jesus from the dead, is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Energy, strength, healing. Get it? The path to God's best Coming next at Cana was the servants hearing what Jesus would have them to do, doing it, surrendering to his will, and their best came next. Our path to God's best is the same. Hearing a fresh word from Jesus. Maybe you've been hearing from Jesus for the last 30, 40, 50 years. Yay, I'm so happy. But they had to collect manna every day in the wilderness. Fresh manna. And our best coming next is turns on the reality of today, hearing a fresh word from Jesus, obeying it, surrendering to his love, and standing on the promise, that word, resolutely, through the storm, in spite of the crisis, in spite of the critics. And lastly, here's the greatest news of all. Jesus is right here, right now, offering friendship, grace, and hope from God. I'm saying the same exact Jesus that stood in that village in Cana and performed this miracle, that exact same Jesus is here right now, right now by his spirit. And he is offering today what he offered then provision and grace, and what we need for our best to come next. Jesus is not a religion. As a matter of fact, he was the greatest threat to religion that ever has been. He is not an idea. He is not an ideal. He is alive, and he is here right now offering you and offering me his best. He said it this way once, and he says it here today. Come unto me, all ye that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light, as we conclude, which are the greatest words a pastor can hear when a visiting speaker says <laughs> when I conclude as I, before as I conclude, I want to talk to two groups of people right now. I want to talk to you if You've heard this message of the forgiveness of Jesus, of the new life that he gives, of, of, of being, starting over again. You've heard it, but you have not ever personally reached out and received it. The Bible says that salvation, forgiveness is a gift, but we're coming upon the holidays now. It starts, the holiday season starts out, of course, everyone knows, with my birthday, November 21st, and then Thanksgiving and Christmas and all that stuff. Anyway. We're coming to the Christmas season, and there's going to be people that buy presents. Someone may have a gift for you that they buy, they put in a box, they wrap, they put a bow. It may even have your name on it, and it's under the tree, but whatever it is, it's not yours. Though it was bought, paid for, and presented, it's not yours until you do one very important thing. You reach out and receive it. Now it's yours. Same thing with salvation. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to speak to you today. If you've never personally said, I need Jesus, I believe that when he died, he died on the cross for me, and I receive his free gift of eternal life today. If that's you, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to look out across this room, and I'm going to ask you to do something very important. The Bible says if you call on the name of the Lord You shall be saved. But Jesus also said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before the Father. I want to give you an opportunity to confess Christ, not by standing up or coming forward, but with every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to look out across this room. And if you're making that decision today to say, from this day forward, I am all in. I am going to follow Christ. I believe he saved me on the cross. I want you to look up and meet my eyes. I'm going to look to my left, your right. Just look up and meet my eyes. And after our eyes meet, you can look right back down. Anyone here to my left? Is that why you're looking at me back there, brother? Okay, that's a great decision. Anyone else here to my left. Is that why you're looking at me back there? That's a great decision. Anyone else here? Is that why you're looking at me, sir? All right. Anyone else here? Now as I move to the middle of the room. Is that why you're looking at me, bro? That's a great decision. Middle of this section here. Is that why you're looking at me, sir? All right. He sees your heart. Now I'm going to look to my right, your left. Starting from the front and looking towards the back. Just look up and meet my eyes right now anyone in this section. If for whatever reason I didn't see your eyes, don't worry. God sees your heart and your decision is real. The Bible says that in response to a saying yes to Jesus, he comes to live in us by his Holy Spirit. Now with every head still bowed and every eye still closed, I want to speak to a second group of people. Have you been feeling that your dreams are done? You're you're, just you're just in a holding pattern. And yet something inside of you is saying, Lord God, I, I, I've got more. I, I, I want to experience more of you. I, I have a dream. Lord, I want to pray with you right now very quickly that God would just reignite this thing. And that his miracle touch of hope and brightness for a future filled with him would reemerge in your heart. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, just throw your hand in the air real quick if I can pray for you for this. I see that hand, I see that hand, I see that hand, that hand, that hand, that hand. Now to the middle, that hand, that hand, that hand. And now to the right, I see that hand, yes. And I see that hand. And I see that hand and that hand. Lord God, here are people saying, we believe your word. We believe you are alive. We believe your touch is yet powerful. And we ask you, Lord God, to touch what has become plain water in our heart, and turn it into the finest wine ever. Lord God, reignite that passion, reignite that vision, reignite that hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbefoursquare.com.